I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm thrilled to have you tuned into our program in this hour. It's an amazing, amazing conversation with Lord Lewis. Uh, as I said a few times, there's so much in that book, so much to her love story with Reginald Lewis. Uh, I'm so glad that she took the time to just really share with us uh, about his amazing backstory. And I repeat once again, if you have not read his book, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun?, uh, you got to read that and then read her book, Why Should Guys Have All the Fun? An Asian-American story of love, marriage, motherhood, and running a billion-dollar empire. It's an amazing love story, but it's an amazing finance story. Uh, it's an amazing story of overcoming and resilience. And uh, I just love, love, love the fact that Lord Lewis was actually uh, in L.A. today and was able to come join us in studio. And speaking of in studio, how lucky am I? This doesn't happen every day. Um, when you do a show uh, that's nationally syndicated like this, you end up talking to a lot of folk on the phone a lot of times. Uh, but uh, I feel fortunate that uh, two guests in a row are actually in studio, uh, which is beautiful. So I don't feel so alone today. Usually it's just Miles and me. I never feel alone. Miles is always here with me. Uh, but I, uh, I am delighted to have guests come in and see me from time to time. Uh, in this hour, uh, new census data reveals that in the rich nation in the history of the world, the rise in poverty is stunning, and stunning is their word, not even mine. Uh, we'll talk about it in this hour with the director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at UC Riverside here in California. His name is David Brady, and David Brady joins me right now in studio. David, good to see you. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me in studio as well. It's my great delight to have you in studio. I should start by just bragging just a little bit. I, I noted uh, in, in preparing for this conversation that you went to a place called Indiana University. I did, yeah. <laughs> I think we missed each other by a couple of years. A few years, a few years. But I'm, I'm a proud Hoosier, uh, and uh, anytime I get a chance to shout out Indiana University, I'm going to do that. And so it turns out that my guests in this hour and I both uh, matriculated at the same place uh, in the Midwest. And so uh, for all you Hoosier fans listening, uh, there's another uh, IU guy in the building right about now. That said, um, this is disturbing for me in a variety of ways, and disturbing is, is the kindest word I can use um, in the course of my work and career. Uh, I've talked about poverty uh, more times than I can count. Uh, at one point uh, years ago, I did a documentary uh, out of a, uh, of a tour that I did called The Poverty Tour. Did a poverty tour across the nation. Cornell West and I were on this bus together going to big cities and small towns, Indian reservations, coal mines. We we're all across the country uh, on this poverty tour and filming what we saw. Uh, out of that tour comes a book called The Rich and the Rest of Us, a Poverty Manifesto that I wrote along with Cornell West. Uh, and so this issue has been uh, particularly important to me for, for many, many years. And so whenever I see new data about the, the crisis, the state of poverty in this country, other talk show hosts may think it's a boring subject, may not want to tackle it, but I, I'm drawn to it. Uh, because too many of our fellow citizens find themselves in poverty. And as you well know, you can't just talk about poverty without talking about income inequality and economic immobility. And so I'm always delighted, uh, as boring as it might be to some people, to have these conversations because I think it's unsustainable. This level of poverty, this rich, uh, this gap between the rich and the rest of us, between the have-gots and the have-nots, is not sustainable. And I believe, and I want to start our conversation asking you this question, I believe that poverty is a threat to our very democracy. 
That's my view. That poverty is a threat to our democracy. That's a bold statement, but that's my view. What say you, David Brady? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, if we know anything, we know that being poor discourages political participation. Mm -hmm. uh, people are less likely to vote. They're less likely to have resources to have a voice in our democracy. So if it's not a threat to our democracy, it's certainly undermining our democracy. This huge chunk of people in America that we disempower and we basically disenfranchise by making them so economically insecure, they don't have the resources to to have a voice in America. So I think that's definitely true. If it's not unsustainable, it's an extraordinary squandering mm -hmm. of our resources. Mm -hmm. And so one way I think of poverty is to think of it as like, you know, our, for example, our children are a natural resource. That's our best national resource. And we just squander these children, right? We have, you know, huge shares of our child population that's in poverty. And they grow up to have all kinds of problems from everything from health to other kinds of behavioral problems because of that poverty. And so we're just squandering national resources by letting so many children be deprived. Let's talk about the squandering when we come forward with David Brady uh, of UC Riverside. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory, expand of ideas? Your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. More of David Brady coming your way right now. According to the Census Bureau, the, the, la the latest data shows, I mentioned moments ago in case you've just tuned in, that uh, there's a rise in poverty in this country, and that rise in poverty is stunning. Again, that's their word, not mine. David Brady is a professor of public policy and director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at UC Riverside here in California, and I'm honored to have him in studio to talk about this new data and uh, why um, some are stunned uh, by the data. It is stunning, but we shouldn't be stunned by it. It's not like we didn't see this coming, uh, particularly when we can't uh, pass good public policy like the, the, the child tax credit and other things we let just uh, go by the wayside. This shouldn't be stunning to any of us. But there are two S words that I want to, and one of, one of them is not smiley, but there are two S words that I want to uh, give David Brady a chance to unpack. Um, uh, one uh, mentioned on the air, the other mentioned during that during that break. But I want to give him a chance to un unpack both of these. Let me start with the squandering word. Um, so what you said earlier, David, is in this country we have a really bad problem of squandering resources. Unpack that for me. Yeah, I mean, our child poverty rates are really high. Everybody knows that. They certainly were lower in 2021 because of the expanded child tax credit. Mm -hmm. So we proved in 2021 we can push child poverty cut it in half. Mm -hmm. You know, we can push it down. But then we turned that off, partly because Senator Manchin and others were unwilling to continue the child tax credit, which worked extremely well. So right there in a two-year period, you see us turn the switch on and off to get our child poverty rate half as big as what it is today. Mm -hmm. All right. But what's really troubling is we just maintain this disturbingly high rates of child poverty year after year after year, with the exception of 2021. And one way to think of it is that, like, you know, something like about a fifth of kids in America are poor. And we know that being poor is bad for your health. It's bad for your development. It's bad for your education. It's bad for your well-being. And so we're we're writing this check on children's backs, and then we're having to cash it later in life when these people have all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. One concrete example is that in the 1980s, certain states expanded Medicaid to allow more kids to have access to Medicaid, which is a program to provide health care mm -hmm. for poor kids. And we can see 30 years later, those kids that got Medicaid 
are less likely to have chronic conditions, right? Diabetes, Alzheimer's, uh, arthritis, all kinds of chronic conditions. And chronic conditions are really expensive. So we're just squandering the health of these young people. And you fast forward to today, I mean, the numbers are pretty stunning. It's about a fifth of kids. But what we overlook is that it's about a third of African-American kids are poor. Almost a third of Native American and Latino American kids are poor. And by contrast, only about 10 or 11% of white and Asian kids are poor. So really child poverty is a perfect way in which we create our racial inequality in America. Mm. Um, that's a damning indictment that we created. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to that notion that, uh, that we actually create this problem, particularly uh, when it comes to, to, comes to black babies. Um, but let me, let me go back to Joe Manchin again. Um, he, he has annoyed me, and not just me. <laughs> he and, and, and Christian Sinema yeah. uh, have annoyed me and others for, for, for months now. Um, fortunately, Democrats have a little breathing room, of course, in the Senate right now. But, but what, what does it say to you? Um, what does it say to you, David, that um, let, let me let me let me let me rephrase it. I believe that you can judge any nation, any republic by how it treats its children. Mm-hmm. That's my view. You can judge any nation by how it treats its children. I don't care what you say. I want to know what you are doing or not doing. Dr. King would put it this way, that budgets are moral documents. Budgets are moral documents. Say what you will. but When I see your budget. I know what your priorities are because budgets are moral documents. What's it say about our nation um, that you could have politicians in Washington? And let me just be more more exact here. Joe Manchin represents West Virginia. Yeah. I mentioned earlier on this poverty tour that uh, I did years ago and did this documentary. Um, I went to West Virginia. I went to those coal mines. And poverty in parts of West Virginia doesn't just exist. It's abject. It's abject poverty in West Virginia. How is it possible in this democracy so-called democracy, you could have politicians who do away with think it is not worth extending a child tax credit. Yeah, I mean, we can get in his head, but I think it's just a commitment to just a totally wrongheaded way to think about the issue. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're obsessed with disciplining and punishing poor people to teach them some sort of lesson, Mm -hmm. you can withhold anything from them. Why don't we let them starve to death? Maybe they'll learn the lesson then. Mm -hmm. And I think he's just completely consumed by this teaching and disciplining and punishing poor people because he doesn't think they're working hard enough or Mm -hmm. they're not living their lives the way they want. So part of it is just this completely wrong-headed way to view it, Liz. A second way to think of it is just greed and self-interest. He's a very wealthy guy. He probably has a very, very high income himself. And the way you fight poverty is you tax rich people to pay it to help poor people. That's how you do it. There's no other way to do it. It's not rocket science. No country in the history of the world has had low poverty without some redistribution. So if you don't want to pay taxes because you're a rich person like Joe Manchin, who's a multimillionaire, then you're never going to be able to do anything about poverty. So he's both got this sort of wrong-headed, old-fashioned, punitive view of poor people, and he's just unwilling to pay taxes for him and his affluent friends. Racism may be, as I've said more than once, may be the most intractable issue in this country. And yet, um, that is a distinctly different statement from the statement that you made, which is that we end up creating, mm-hmm. we end up perpetuating racism yeah. by the way in which we deny black babies. Say a word about that. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think, I mean, both, I agree with both your premise that racism is probably the most intractable inequalities in American society. Um, And I do think we create it. We actively maintain it, right? We sometimes like to believe that if we could just be compassionate 
to people, Mm -hmm. somehow this would overcome this. But let's be real. It's Mm -hmm. in the self-interest of white people like myself to maintain this racial hierarchy that we have in society. People take advantage of the fact that they have all these advantages because of race. So, I mean, I think we need to be honest that people benefit from racism and they benefit from a system that subjugates all these people. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that that people are working hard to maintain that system. It's in their self-interest. And uh, I, yeah, and I think we make very deliberate political choices in America to withhold resources uh, and to maintain the system we've got. The, the, the thought that comes to me though, as you're talking about uh, being a white guy um, is that uh, that so many children today in poverty are white. Yeah. So it's it's it it is true that we are creating this problem. We are perpetuating racism with the ways in which we deny black babies. But it is also true. Two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. it's also true. It's also true that a whole lot of these babies, a whole lot of these folks who are poor, um, are white. Yeah. And that and that still seems not to be the engine uh, that can drive help us get some traction on this issue, even though there are more white kids who are impoverished now than ever before, it reminds me of the whole gun debate. Mm-hmm. I've said many times um, that when I saw those uh, white kids get killed at Sandy Hook uh, and nothing was done about that, I said then, America ain't serious about this issue. We will never get serious about guns. It's one thing to let black and brown babies get killed uh, by gun violence. But when they see their own babies get killed and this issue doesn't get taken seriously, America ain't never going to get serious about gun violence. Yeah. They can let white babies get slaughtered in situations like these. So I, I come back to this issue of poverty. If we know that the numbers of white babies and white uh, people in this country are rising as well, again, the government's uh, word is stunning. Mm-hmm. They are stunned by this rise in poverty. Well, that ain't just black people. That yeah. ain't just that ain't just brown people. And yet that isn't enough to get a real conversation about poverty, income inequality, and economic immobility, which leads me to ask, if not that, then what? When will ever yeah. when will we ever get serious about it? Yeah, I mean I have this line where to understand poverty we have to both think about who's more likely to be poor. Mm-hmm. And in this case it would be African American people, but also who are most of the people in poverty. And mm-hmm. we need to understand both of those dynamics. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about like who a typical poor person in America is, it's a white middle aged lady with a high school degree that has a partner and a job in the South. Mm. That's who the typical poor person is. But we don't think about it that way. And so it's very important we're morally outraged by the racial disparities in poverty. But we also need to think about sort of who are most people in poverty. Most people in poverty are workers. They're mm-hmm. people that are working outside the home. So I think both of those are important. Now, but I, it's a tough question. Like, if we know how to fix poverty, why don't we do it? Mm-hmm. Gosh, I wish I had a great answer. I mean, it just, I guess, American ideology, we believe in individuals. We want to make people work. We believe that that individual behavior can drive the problem, even though it doesn't. And, you know, it's so short-sighted, like we talked about with squandering, because it just doesn't even make sense financially to deprive poor Mm -hmm. kids of resources and then be surprised later in life you're paying for it. I mentioned earlier that I want to get to two S words. I haven't got to the second. I didn't forget, y'all. Squandering was the first S word. I'm coming to the second S word in a moment. Um, But David keeps saying things that that keep taking me in different directions, uh, and I can't get to the second S word, but I will, I promise. you said something a moment ago. Again, I want to give you, I want to interrogate right now and give you a chance to expound upon, and that is the reality that most people in this country who are in poverty 
also work. Yeah, yeah. That that if that ain't a damning indictment of our right, culture right. Uh, of our society, I don't know what is. That 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 most people who are in poverty actually work. They're not lazy. They're not shiftless. Um, they haven't given up on themselves or, or on the American dream, whatever that is these days. But 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 how do I process that statement that most fellow citizens in this country who are in poverty also go to work every day. Yeah. So um, the number I like to use is that about three times as many people are in households of, excuse me, three times as many poor people are in households where somebody is working versus no one is working. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a clean way Mm -hmm. to think about it. If you've got a breadwinner in the household that's working, you're still poor. That's a working poor person. The whole household is a working poor household. Sure, there's a population that's much older or very young. Of Mm -hmm. course, they're not working. But amongst anyone that could be working, most poor people are working. And we have to think of American poverty as really a problem of working poverty. There's far more people working than there's not working. And also, I mean, Americans are crazy workaholics. Look Mm -hmm. at us. We work Mm -hmm. all the time. We work more than other countries. We have low rates of unemployment compared to other countries. So it's just not true that the problem is joblessness or people not working. Most poor people work. But if you work, why should you be poor? I guess because we have such – why are we yeah. or why should we? We shouldn't yeah. be. Right. But we are because we have incredibly weak labor unions in the United States. We are because we don't have the supplements to people's incomes. We don't do enough of that. So we do things like the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. But that's not enough. We need to do more to facilitate sort of taking people's earnings further so they can make it. Okay. Um, speaking of labor unions, I, I initially, as this audience knows, uh, I was calling it a summer of strikes. Mm. Summer is now over. We're in the fall. So now I call it a season of strikes. I like it. Yeah, we're in a season of strikes now. Um, as one who works on the issue of poverty, given that you mentioned labor unions, how do you read the fact that these workers who are also poor are raising up their backs and taking to the picket line. Yeah, it's good news to see some resistance, yeah. and it's good to see wa- uh, labor empowered. Um, you know, it happens when the economy is a bit better. That's when labor feels they have the capacity to speak out and to rise up and push back against a system that's pretty rigged against them. I think uh, what's unique about right now is that, as is the case, a lot of these strikes are defensive. Mm-hmm. You know, the United Auto Workers is striking to protect what they used to have, to try to get their wages to where they used to be, to try to protect their jobs. And so that's the sad reality is that a lot of strikes are often defensive, but it's a good thing. I'm glad to see labor rise up. I'm glad to see a little bit of energy around labor. We've still got a long ways to go, and we still have a low level of unionization compared to most other rich democracies. Mm-hmm. Even within the U.S., think about some of the places in the U.S. California, New York, you're upwards of 25% of people are unionized, of workers are unionized. But you got places like North Carolina where it's like, I don't know, 1% of the private sector is unionized, 3% of total workers. And so the the disparities across the United States are very telling as well. In the South, you basically, it's almost illegal to be a member of a labor union, Mm -hmm. right? And in places like California and New York, the average worker is going to fare better than they will in Mississippi and Alabama, partly because of labor. So the first S word I wanted you to unpack was squandering. We did that. The second S word is scarcity. And um, as I understand your point of view and and read your work, uh, you have an indictment of this notion of scarcity that we try to claim at times in this country. 
Yeah, I mean, we like to tell ourselves this story that, like, there's not enough to go around. Mm. Oh, we don't have any money in the budget. The government doesn't have enough resources. We make political choices. We have plenty of resources. We live in one of the most opulent, affluent countries in the history of the world. Here in Los Angeles, we've got tons of economic resources. We're an incredibly rich city, yet we have, you know, tens of thousands of people living on the street here in, in Los Angeles because we choose to withhold those resources for those people. So, you know, almost of what we think of as a quote-unquote scarcity is really just a distribution problem. Mm-hmm. Um, one way to think of it metaphorically is Mark Rank is a, f- a famous poverty scholar I really like, and he describes poverty as like a game of musical chairs. It's like we take away one of the chairs, and then we say, oh, the problem is you're too slow grabbing a chair. And it's like the game is rigged. There's not mm-hmm. enough chairs. I think of it not just as a shortage of chairs, but that we make a political choice to let some guys lay across three chairs. We have two or three mm. chairs that are piled in the corner, disrepaired nearby, and we could fix those chairs. We could make this guy have only one chair, and we choose to create this artificial scarcity by how we distribute resources, right? Mm. And so there's plenty of resources. I mean, you and I and most many people here in California are very affluent. We're very fortunate. We don't have a shortage of resources, but we choose to not distribute them. Mm. Uh, when we come forward, I want I want to a couple of the questions I want to ask about this distribution problem. So it's not a scarcity problem; it's a distribution problem. And the, 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 that that dialogue we just had begs the obvious question, which is what is to be done about this distribution problem? So think about that for a second. Yeah. Now that you need to, you do this every day, <laughs> running the, uh, the the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at uh, UC Riverside. So I don't, he doesn't need time to think about it. He just needs time to explain it. I don't have that time right now, but I will when we come forward. You're listening to uh, David Brady on Tavis Smiley. Great. This is getting good. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. It does indeed with David Brady, who is uh, uh, a professor of public policy and director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at UC Riverside here in California. Uh, In case you've just tuned in, we've been having a spirited uh, conversation uh, already. Uh, What we are talking about in this hour is new census data that points out that there is a stark, a stark and sharp, trying to say two words at once, a stark and sharp rise in poverty in this country that the government at least finds to be stunning. Why they are stunned when they keep this data uh, and why they are stunned when they pass bad public policy, why they are stunned when they don't take this issue seriously is stunning to me. Uh, but nonetheless, they say they are stunned by this uh, dramatic rise in poverty. We're trying to unpack that uh, with an expert in this field, uh, David Brady. There are a few things uh, watching my time with it I want to just kind of move, move through. Um, the, the first is... Um, um, this distribution issue that you were raising earlier. So we were talking about scarcity, and, you, and your point was scarcity is really an excuse. It's, it's trash. There really is no scarcity in this country, uh, the richest nation in the history of the world, with opulence and affluence everywhere you look. Your thing was there's a distribution problem. So give me just a bit more on this distribution problem, what it is and what can ought be done about the distribution problem. Yeah, I mean, like, think about the child tax credit, which is such a beautiful example where we turned on a policy that cuts child poverty in half for one year and then we turned it off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the estimates of how much that cost, a little fuzzy, but a couple hundred billion dollars, Mm -hmm. more or less. And coming up with a couple hundred billion dollars may sound like a lot of money, but it's not. We've got those resources. We could generate that tax revenue. We could reappropriate other funds. We're giving giving Ukraine 
money by the billions. By the billions, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And we give money away in terms of not having a legitimate estate tax for inheritance. Mm-hmm. We don't have high enough tax on affluent people. There's tons of tax evasion by rich people where they shelter their money elsewhere and so forth. So we could raise a couple hundred billion dollars. We just choose not to, mm-hmm. right? And we turn, to, we turn that off, right? And What's even more sort of mind-blowing about it is that not only do we have those couple hundred billion dollars available to pay for the child tax credit if we chose to do so, but we also pay for not funding that child tax credit. So down the line, Mm -hmm. that's going to cost more money in health care than it would if we invested in those kids. So Mm -hmm. it's just not – it's even counterproductive to do so. There, there are two things in particular that you have been working on um, that I want to get uh, some uh, some data out of you, if I yeah. can. Um, let me let me do it in this order. First, um, little birdie told me uh, that uh, that that the Blum Initiative uh, has been doing some uh, some interviews with politicians in, in various parts of the country, and that you're essentially talking to them and, this is my word, sort of quizzing them on what they know about poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as a guy who does television and radio, I would love to be a fly on the wall or be in the corner with my hidden camera to record what it is that you're actually hearing and seeing when you're talking to politicians uh, and asking them questions about poverty. So when you quiz these politicians about poverty, what are you? What, what's your takeaway about what they know and don't know about the crisis of poverty in this country. How how ignorant are they about poverty? Yeah, I mean they they get so we gave them like twelve different questions, and we mm-hmm. had thirty eight California state legislators and ten Texan state legislators as a comparison, and they get about half the questions right out of those twelve questions. Mm-hmm. And the things they get wrong are telling. Like they really have no understanding of where the top of the income distribution is. So like think about where what does it take to be in the top 5% mm-hmm. of the income distribution? It takes like what? Maybe 4 or $500,000, something like that. Um, and they think it takes billions, millions. Mm-hmm. And so when they raise taxes on quote unquote rich people, they they don't think they they think they need to only target super super rich people and they don't appreciate people like themselves that have 3 400,000. Those are the rich people that you mm-hmm. need to be taxed as well. So they just have a very vague sense of the income distribution. They don't know where the bottom 20% is. So they think that surely the official poverty line, for example, is much higher than it actually is. So when we say 10, 12% of Americans are poor with the really conservative official poverty mm-hmm. measure, they think, oh, that means they have $40,000. And it's like, no, that means they have less than $20,000 for a family three or something. So they just don't really understand where the income distribution is. Um, they get some things right. Like they know, for we ask them if the home mortgage mortgage interest tax deduction is bigger than temporary assistance to needy families. And they know that, okay. But they don't know a lot of different things about like really what the realities of poverty are. So we ask them about if most poor people are in working poor households or non-working poor households. Mm-hmm. A lot of them get that wrong. They mm-hmm. don't really understand that. And and so this is Tavis and I were talking about, do they really understand what average Americans have to deal with mm-hmm. to make ends meet? And I think you were saying you suspect they do not. No, I, I think I, I think they don't. Um, in part because when you think about the U.S. Senate, for example, it's a millionaire and billionaire class who run the U.S. Senate. Yeah. I mean, it, we mentioned Joe Manchin earlier. I could pick a number of them out. Um, but if if I were to ask members right now, United States Senate, what's the price of eggs? They would be clueless. Wow. If I were to ask them what the price of gas is, they know guys. Pra- they know gas prices are soaring, but they don't put gas in their cars. 
They right. would many of them would fail a fundamental question right now. What is the price of gas? Yeah, they, they wouldn't know it. Yeah. Um. And so there, there, there are these basic questions to your point about asking them about poverty. There are basic questions they don't know because they are so far removed from it. But when you are again part of the millionaire class and billionaire class who run the U.S. Senate, your life is so removed from the lives, as Sly Stone would say, of everyday people that you don't know what they're trying to navigate. And then here you come with more data telling me that you guys actually sat down and asked them questions about poverty and they didn't get it, which leads me to ask you, how can we ever expect the body politic to get this issue right, much less take it seriously, if they don't even know where the lines are when it comes to poverty? David Brady? That's a really hard question. I mean, can I uh, answer a different question because yours is too hard? But I mean, one exercise I've done with my students for years, I've done this with my students for years, is I take out the official poverty line. They say, Mm -hmm. how much money does it cost to be not poor? Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, now class, make ends meet. Where do you spend that money? This is how much you have every month for a family of three or a family of four. Mm -hmm. How do you make ends meet? How much does rent cost? How much does child, you know, child care cost, health insurance cost? And I show again and again and again, no one can make ends meet on that line. Mm -hmm. You just can't make it. And so even these poverty numbers that you and I are throwing around, they're dramatic underestimates. There's Mm -hmm. millions more poor people that cannot make ends meet even at that line. And I don't know. I mean, how do we penetrate the policymakers' understanding of just families making ends meet. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we get there, but they, sir, I agree with you. They don't know. They don't, they don't know. It. They don't get it. They're in the dark, and that, that's tragic. It's tragic. Um, the other thing I know that you've been working on at the, at the Blum Initiative uh, is some mortality data. And speaking of what they don't get, if they don't know the price of eggs or the price of gas or the price of milk or whatever, they don't know those things because they're so far removed from it. They don't shop for themselves. They don't put gas in their cars. They don't live the lives that we live. They've got great health insurance. I mean, so many Americans still don't. We'll talk about that in a moment. We're, we're approaching the 10th anniversary of Obamacare. want to get your take on that and its connection link uh, to uh, poverty in this country. But I know you've been working on some mortality data. And if they don't get the other stuff, these senators and congresspersons, then they really don't get that poverty for so many fellow citizens really is a life or death issue. The only time these policymakers understand a life or death issue is literally if they or someone they know has cancer or something. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand that for many fellow citizens, poverty is a life or death question. Yeah. So we did this study that was published this is past summer on this issue. And we came up with a number we said about 183,000 deaths in 2019 before the pandemic, 183,000 deaths can be attributed to poverty. Okay. And that is a gigantic number. You know, that's comparable to the amount of death from dementia or from accidents. It's almost as many as killed by stroke. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly as many people as die from obesity. So mm-hmm. it's a huge risk factor for death in America. And just to give you like the basic basic logic of how we do this. Imagine you're following like 20,000 people over time Mm -hmm. and they're being poor or not is like a switch you're turning on and off. And then we say, okay, in the next year, did that person die? So we can calculate the probabilities. If we made you poor or not in a given year, how much does your probability of dying increase? And so we say it increases by a factor of like Mm 1.4. You do the math, you work it all out, end up with about 183,000 deaths. So we have 10 times as many people dying from poverty 
as we do from homicide. And I wouldn't want to trivialize homicide. No, That's very, it. very sad. And of course, we should be concerned about homicide as well. But we're just letting hundreds of thousands of people die from poverty every year while we get freaked out about these other causes of death. Well, the point is that it's predictable. Uh, it's totally can, predictable. You, you can actually, as you yeah. just did, you can do yeah. the math. And yeah. if you make somebody so poor over a period of time, uh, ding, 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 they're going to die Yeah. Um, for a variety of reasons. I, I digress. We'll continue with David Brady when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. The city of... Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 I mentioned David Brady moments ago that we are approaching now, believe it or not, the 10th anniversary of Obamacare. Uh, and I laugh every time I say that because it, it's actually called the the, the affordable the affordable health care act, right? Yeah. Uh, and nobody knows what it's actually called because Republicans started calling it Obamacare as a way to denigrate it, and then that name stuck. Uh, and uh, as years go by, and the former president looks back on what he was in fact able to accomplish, it turns out that Obamacare is the greatest thing he actually got done. Yeah. Uh, for many of us, it wasn't it wasn't what we thought, what we hoped. Uh, in many ways, I think Obama negotiated against himself and sort of watered down what he promised when he ran, which is universal health care. Obamacare is not universal health care. Mm-hmm. It's approaching universal health care. It's a step in the right direction. That's not what it is. That's what he promised. And I think he negotiated against himself in some ways. That said, it is the crown jewel of the Obama era, the, the Obamacare. So what, what they meant... As a, as, as a way to demean him, uh, what they meant as a way to, uh, uh, to denounce him, uh, it has stuck. And it really is called Obamacare. And he can, he can proudly uh, say, yeah, I'm the guy that did that. It, it's Obamacare. But we're approaching the 10th anniversary. And I'm wondering if you can draw any sort of linkages, any parallels between Obamacare and poverty, whatever that looks like. Yeah. I mean, first I'll say one thing is that I think it's actually a healthy and productive friction that people like you, Tavis, are pushing. President Obama to do more. And I think all of the progressive victories towards equality happen because of that productive mm-hmm. friction. You have moderates that are being more cautious, and you have those of us that are pushing harder. And I'll, I, I'm an incrementalist. I'll take the win mm-hmm. and say we made some progress, yeah. but he only we only get there because people are pushing him That's to right. go further. So That's I think right. it's a productive friction, and it's important that people keep the pressure on the Democrats to push even further. Mm-hmm. But I do think we have to give him credit in that he lifted tens of millions out of of no uninsurance. Doubt. No doubt. And that's like giving them money, mm-hmm. right? You know, in some ways, if you don't have to buy health insurance and now you qualify for Medicaid, it's like you're getting several $400 a month per person and, because as, if as you, you had to buy it. And as you know, healthcare concerns bankrupt more Americans oh, than anything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the reasons, I have this pet theory that one of the reasons we're so worried about housing these days is because we actually made some progress on healthcare over the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not, by no means are we all the way there. Mm-hmm. But my view of it is like you keep pushing, you take the wins, the moderates, maybe they compromise in ways I might not do, but we get towards a better situation by pushing, pushing, pushing. And you look at most of the rich democracies, they didn't get equality by like one piece of legislation. It was always a push and struggle over several decades. So Obamacare really reset the agenda. Now we're debating Medicare for all because they set the agenda where that actually got on the politi- on the discussion table. Yeah. Um, but we have to give them credit. I mean, tens of millions of people got health insurance that wouldn't have had it. And that's like giving them a lot of money. When we come forward, our remaining moments with uh, David Brady, I want to ask a question he just teased up for me now. And that is, um, we were talking earlier about the ways he can predict the way they do this mortality data. If you're poor for a certain period of time, uh, there are certain conditions that you live in. Uh, the data is clear. You're going to die. 
And so they can actually tell um, uh, who's going to die. And it, it's, it's just a sad reality in this country that we can predict who's going to die because of directly because of poverty. So to your point now about houselessness and homelessness, I wonder what we are wrestling with right now that we can be predictive about in the future when it comes to poverty based on the houselessness uh, yeah. and homelessness of fellow citizens. We'll do that when we come forward in our remaining moments with David Brady on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Rank number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. I'm Tavis Smiley. He's David Brady. He is the uh, director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at UC Riverside here in California. He's also a professor of public policy at UC Riverside. And I've delighted, um, although the subject matter uh, is something I wish we didn't have to discuss, as I said to you in the break, this is a will problem, not a skill problem. This is a will problem, not a skill problem. We have the skill. We don't have the will uh, to address this issue. In the, in the remaining moments that we have, though, I, I said I wanted to ask you about since there are other things you can predict, namely the mortality rate of people um, uh, who are going to die uh, literally from just being poor. That, that ought to be unacceptable in this country, that you could die just from being poor. But that said, there's a rise not just in this city, but you got Karen Bass fighting this in L.A. I talked to the mayor last night. Um, you have Eric Adams in New York begging migrants to stop coming to New York City because it's increasing their issue of homelessness, houselessness, uh, and ability to put these people in safe spaces. Um, all across the country, you have mayors wrestling. Um, I talked to Brandon Johnson, mayor of Chicago, was on this program just last week. He's wrestling with this in Chicago. So it's not, it's it's, it's an everywhere problem. The question right quick is, um, what do you see into the future regarding poverty? If we think that the government thinks that this new data says uh, that there's a rise in poverty, and they find it stunning that we are experiencing a rise right now. As we continue to wrestle or not wrestle, as it were, successfully with houselessness and homelessness, what impact will that have on poverty rates continuing to rise? And if stunned is the word for the day now, I don't know what the word will be a year or two from now. Yeah. I mean, so I kind of think of homelessness as like the combination of poverty and other social problems with a really bad housing market. So like that combo gets you homelessness. I saw an article in the New York Times the other day that West Virginia has more drug addiction, more poverty than California, but doesn't have the homelessness we have here because they have a more... Uh, they have a stock of housing for low-income folks. So I think of homelessness as just kind of like the tip of the spear of that combination. I give uh, Mayor Bass a lot of credit. I think she's worked, she's rolled up her sleeves from day one. She's treated it as the emergency it actually is. She's put enormous resources in trying to make a situation better. The prior administrations just acted as if the problem wasn't there. They just didn't really do anything about it. They built long-range housing as opposed to treating it as an emergency. Building long-range housing is a good thing, but that didn't address the sort of urgent nature of it. So I give her a lot of credit is trying to clean up a terrible situation. If we wanted a mayor that just acted as if the terrible situation wasn't there, she wasn't the woman to do that. And I, that's why I respect her is that she's admitted we have a crisis. Um, you know, one number I heard, and I think this is true, although it's hard to pin down, is that something like two or three times as many people die homeless in LA as from homicide. Mm -hmm. And think about how much money we spend on the police budget here in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. It's like a fifth or a quarter of our budget. And whether it should be or shouldn't be, 
set that aside for a second and say, we're letting three times as many people die homeless as we are for just, you know, a, a few hundred homicides. And so it really says something about, like you said, Martin Luther King, that our budget's a moral document. We've chosen to put more money into police and not enough money into housing. And this is the the situation we've created. Well, what Karen Bash is dealing with here in L.A., Brandon Johnson is dealing with in Chicago, Eric Adams in Chicago, uh, they deal with it in New Orleans, um, all across the country. Um, this issue is being dealt with. Sheila Jackson Lee wants to be mayor in Houston. She going to deal with it in Houston. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conundrum, and um, we'll leave it there for now. David Brady uh, is professor of public policy and director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at UC Riverside. I've been, been honored to have you in the studio, David. Thanks for your insight and for your work and your witness. I appreciate you.